It's the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, composer and alto saxophonist Rudresh Mahanthapa. Well, I started playing saxophone in fourth grade. My older brother played clarinet, and I always saw him practicing. What he said was that the guys in the j- he played in the orchestra, and he said the guys in the jazz band look like they're having a lot more fun than I am. <laughs> so that was very encouraging. And then he mentioned something about improvisation, how, how people were taking solos, and they were, quote-unquote, making it up as they went. You know, and I, I was very intrigued by that, and terrified by that as well. <laughs> But I think the clincher was that he said that, you know, the baritone sax, especially if you're shorter, would sit on the floor and, you know, shake the whole room. And that was the most intriguing, because my mom had all these knickknacks from all of her world travels, like little porcelain dolls and stuff, and the idea of all of them shaking uh, was really, really enticing. Welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. I'm Dan Buskirk, and here we talk to artists, writers, and musicians about their lives and work. You can find the Fun to Know podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, leave comments for us there, or email us at Fun to Know Podcast, always with the numeral two, at gmail.com. And if you have a minute, go to our iTunes page and leave a review. Some quick announcements, all uh, cinema-oriented. Plugging this one more time, uh, seats are still available for a class I'll be teaching at Fleischer Arts Memorial in January, uh, teaching a five-class film studies course entitled Stretching the Canvas, Painters on Film. Together, we'll be viewing and discussing Artemisia, the 1997 film directed by Agnes Merlet about Italian Baroque painter Artemisia Gentileschi, Love is the Devil, a study for a portrait by Francis Bacon, from 1998, directed by John Maybury. Mr. Turner, directed by Mike Lee, about the 19th century painter J.M.W. Turner. Seraphine, about the French painter Seraphine Louis, directed by Marvin Provost. And Vincent and Theo, directed by the great Robert Altman, about Vincent van Gogh and his, uh, his relationship with his brother Theo. Classes are free with Fleischer membership, but seating is limited Go to Fleischer.org, that's F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R.org, for more information. I'll also be hosting a double bill screening at the Rotunda, just off the University of Pennsylvania campus on Walnut Street at 40th, this January 12th at 8 p.m. It's a night of 1980s pop music epics, starting off with Sign of the Times, the 1987 theatrical feature directed by Prince, capturing his Sign of the Times tour filmed mainly at his Paisley Park studios. For me, it stands as one of the great concert films and is currently out of circulation. The New York Times' Janet Maslin said it plays like science fiction, a visit to the Prince planet. He has never cast a stronger spell. The film features the inexhaustible dancer Cat and the percussion great Sheila E. Also on the bill, the 1980 film from director Brian Gibson, Breaking Glass. Before he directed Tina Turner's glossy biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It?, and the Josephine Baker story for HBO, Brian Gibson made this gritty and stylish musical drama of the rise and fall and rebirth of a Bowie-like 80s rock star played by the real-life pop star Hazel O'Connor. The film captures the social chaos of London at the birth of the Thatcher era, with our heroine battling sexism, concert promoters, and neo-Nazis, as well as performing a bunch of of memorable British New Wave tunes. And we'll be playing the UK cut of the film that's 10 minutes longer than the version that briefly played in theaters in the US, where some fondly remember it playing in the USA Network's alternative music program Night Flight in the mid-80s. 
So once again, that's Prince's Sign of the Times and Hazel O'Connor in Breaking Glass this January 12th, 2017 at 8 p.m. at the Rotunda in Philadelphia. For more information, you can go to armcinema25.com, the home of the Andrews Video Vault website. On today's show, composer, alto saxophonist, and new director of jazz at Princeton University, Rudresh Mahanthapa. Rudresh Mahanthapa came out of Boulder, Colorado, was educated at the Berkeley College of Music and at DePaul, and came to national attention not long after moving to New York in 1998, where he soon began collaborating with the then-up-and-coming, now-major jazz force pianist Vijay Iyer. Besides making a series of major statements with Iyer, Mahanthapa has collaborated with guitarist Reza Bassi and trumpeter Amir El Safar for some of the freshest and most groundbreaking jazz releases of the last decade. Rudresh has won the yearly downbeat poll multiple times. He's had a string of recordings under his own name for the Innova, Pie Recordings, and the Clean Feed label. And Bird Calls, honoring the work of Charlie Parker, is his latest out on the ACT Music label. Rudresh has really reached out to the Princeton community, checking in with the WPRB in Princeton, where the DJs have been playing his music for over a decade. He dropped by PRB's studios late in the first semester of teaching there, and he was very warm and open, excitedly talking about his plans for the Princeton Jazz Program and much more. I left his promotion for a December recital in just to illustrate where he was leading the department, but he also talks about learning his craft in primary school, taking the auto saxophone into the future, working with the elusive Bunky Green, losing a sax in Hurricane Sandy, and what's next for his recording and performing career. Artists like Rudresh and Vijay Iyer and their many collaborators, as well as guitarist Mary Halverson, pianist Matthew Shipp, bassist William Parker, flutist Nicole Mitchell, and the still vital elder statesmen like drummer Jack DeJanette, composer Henry Threadgill, and countless others are what make the weekly jazz show I program at WPRB Princeton seem to endlessly rejuvenate itself, despite uninformed naysayers repeating that jazz is dead nonsense. We'll hear excerpts of Mahanthapa's work through the interview, and we'll start off with this off-kilter funk of Waiting is Forbidden, a track that kicks off his 2013 release, Gamak, before heading into our interview. Thanks to WPRB, who originally hosted this interview live. Thank you. 
couldn't be more delighted to have Rudrash in the studio here. I kind of feel like, you know, we've... Uh, sometimes I meditate over somebody's music for a decade, and then poof, one day they're they're in the studio with me. Good uh, good afternoon, Rudrash. <laughs> Voila! It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> you are now the the director of jazz at uh, at Princeton. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really great to be here. It's it's great to be uh, around so many smart, talented people, and and yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of it's an amazing experience. Have you taught uh, often? Have you taught before? Uh, I taught a little bit of college. I, I, I taught a couple of classes at DePaul University in Chicago right after I finished my master's, but that was, you know, over 20 years ago now. So that was when I was three years old. And then, uh, no, I'm just kidding. And then <laughs> I taught at some local colleges and universities when I lived in Chicago. But but not really. I haven't had time. I made mean, it some private teaching, a good bit of private teaching in the in the New York City area as well. But a position like this, you know, I've never really had that experience before. And frankly, I wasn't really looking for a position like this, but I saw this listed and I knew about, you know, the great composition faculty at, at Princeton and, and just this great tradition of, of music and composition and, and, and interesting people coming out of this program. So I, I was very curious about it. And it is an, an, an interesting place. I mean, you have lots of, at least, you know, under my purview with the jazz program, I have... Lots of really interesting, really smart, really talented people who aren't necessarily planning on making a living playing music, which is uh, an interesting position to be in. But what it gives us is a great latitude to to kind of experiment and and expose ourselves to lots of different things and and not be so concerned with what the jazz education industry is dictating to us as, as being, you know, the gospel of what jazz is and jazz needs to be. Yeah, so they're so they're studying, but not not really planning careers in jazz, huh? I mean, I think some of them might, but yeah, but for the most part, I mean, you know, it, it's all undergrads, and and they're all majoring in in other things. And uh, uh, we do offer this certificate in jazz, certificate in jazz studies, which is requires being in the ensembles and and taking several courses. And I'm kind of in the process of reworking that curriculum, but but it is part of the uh, one of the certificate programs, so it's. Um, it's not even what one would consider minoring in jazz, really, but it, it shows a certain dedication and uh, uh, an extremely high level of interest in the art form. So I do have few, a few students that, that are partaking in that, that track, but, but as of now, I don't necessarily have any music majors, and, and I think that's fine, actually. I mean, it, it takes a certain pressure off of what we feel like we have to do. Sure. You know? Yeah, and you've already had a, a performance, I think, uh, last week. Right. Well, uh, w- the the big band, as it's previously been called, has been newly minted as the, the Creative Large Ensemble. And I, I felt like changing our name from the Concert Jazz Orchestra to the Creative Large Ensemble actually just sends a different message for about what we're what we want to do and what we're willing to do and, and, and just breaking down some boundaries of what sounds, actually... sounds less staid. Yeah, right. Exactly. It sounds very contemporary. I mean, my biggest concern with running this program is, is really making sure that, that it's understood by anybody that encounters the program, even peripherally, that, that this is jazz as a living art form. This is jazz as, as a contemporary music. And, and that doesn't mean we're avoiding the tradition. We're very much emphasizing the tradition, but, but we're very concerned with, what jazz means now and and what kind of impact we can have not only art- artistically and musically but you know socially and politically and you know and and 
uh, many other avenues. So um, the Creative Large Ensemble played Saturday night and was very well received, and that's being directed by Darcy James Argue, who uh, you probably know, and, and I hope some of your listeners know that he's, he's one of the most important voices in, in jazz large ensemble writing now and composing and arranging, and um, he's been up for a Grammy a couple of times and has, has won numerous awards, and um, it was important for me upon being hired that that I find s- somebody to run the large ensemble who's who's really dedicated their life to that and who's doing that at a very high level. Um, I knew that wasn't necessarily going to be me. I could do it, but, you know, why not just shoot for the best? So Darcy was the first person I called as soon as I got hired, and he was he was very interested, and he's he put together an amazing program. I mean, they were playing... You know, Strayhorn and Ellington and Mary Lou Williams, but then they were also playing John Hollenbeck and Bob Brookmeyer and, uh, you know, Pedro Eduardo. I mean, they were doing, you know, stuff that's very much out of the long-standing important tradition of this music and pieces that were really contemporary, you know, composed within the last, you know, five to ten years that, again, is, is emphasizing where this music is now. Yeah, that's great. And and you have a, a small group gig coming up this week as well. Right, exactly. This Wednesday, uh, I direct the two small groups, and we're going to be in Taplin Auditorium at Fine Hall at 7.30, and both groups are playing. That's this Wednesday, December 7th. Uh, and that's free, no tickets required, So, so please come out for that. And again, you know, we're doing a, a wide variety of stuff. I mean, we're playing Sonny Rollins and Sonny Stitt and Monk, and we're doing a couple of my compositions. We're doing uh, a few student compositions and, you know, trying to encourage students to write and and not just write, but write for this ensemble and really think about the voices in this group and, in that sense, take kind of an Ellingtonian stance on That's composition, thinking, you know, yeah, where yeah. you're not writing for alto, tenor, trumpet, guitar, piano, bass, and drums, but you're writing for these individuals that, you know, we've gotten to know over the course of the semester and and will continue to become familiar with as right. as the years go by. And you can write to their strengths. And, exactly, yeah. right. Write to their strengths, but also challenge them as well, you know. So yeah. so, so what, what is the, the instrumental lineup there again? So there are two different groups. One is alto saxophone, tenor saxophone, trumpet, uh, guitar, piano, bass, and drums. That's a larger group. That's a seven-piece group. And uh, the other is a quartet, just alto, uh, piano, bass, and drums. And and I might play a little bit with each group as well. Oh, that's great. And I, def- I definitely do that in rehearsal. I, I think I'll I'll indulge myself and do the same in concert. <laughs> so were, were you? did you fall into, uh, into uh, schooling yourself right away as a musician? Uh, when did you first start taking, uh, you know, sort of professional lessons? Well, I started playing saxophone in fourth grade, and I had a, you know, I come from an academic family. My father's a physics professor, and he's retired now, but he was one of the the leaders in high-energy physics. Even though he didn't necessarily understand a whole lot about music, what what he did understand is that if you wanted to do something, you found a teacher, you know. <laughs> so uh, was, was he a little uncomfortable with you pursuing music? Not, no. Uh, well, we'll get to that in a second, maybe. But I, I think... Um, what they did encourage was all, for all of us to be well-rounded and to to, to do as many things as possible and, and to try to do them well. And so we were pretty, you know, overextended. We overextended ourselves. I mean, we wanted to do everything, you know, whether it was Is Spanish brother, classes. Brothers and sisters you're talking about? Yeah, now? I have an older brother and a younger brother who are okay. both very successful in what they do. Um, so my older brother played clarinet, and I always saw him practicing. 
And one of the things he told me, we the, the program I was in in Boulder, Colorado, you would choose an instrument in fourth grade. That's when you can be part of the band program. And um, what he said was that the guys in the jazz, he played in the orchestra, and he said the guys in the jazz band look like they're having a lot more fun than I am. <laughs> so that was very encouraging. And then he mentioned something about improvisation, how, how people were taking solos and they were quote-unquote, making it up as they went, you know, and I, I was very intrigued by that and terrified by that as well. <laughs> um, but I think the clincher was that he said that, you know, the baritone sax, especially if you're shorter, would sit on the floor and, you know, shake the whole room. And that was the most intriguing because my mom had all these knickknacks from all of her world travels, like little porcelain dolls and stuff, and the idea of all of them shaking uh, was really, really enticing. Um, as it turns out, I, I played very little baritone saxophone, and that wasn't until college. But um, even in second grade, you know, everyone plays recorder in music class. And But I really liked it, and I came home and told my mom I wanted lessons. So she found me a teacher. and So I played two years of bar- Baroque recorder in, like, second and third grade. <laughs> and uh, and the switch from recorder to saxophone was, you know, a lot of the fingerings are the same, and I was obviously already reading music and... So my recorder teacher recommended a really great saxophone teacher who I ended up studying with until I left for college. Uh-huh. Um, and he's fabulous. His name is Mark Harris. He lives in Denver. And he's part of, you know, he plays a lot with, like, folks like Ron Miles and, you know, people you you might know, um, and Fred Hess, you know, people who have done some interesting stuff in the Denver metro area, uh, improvised music scene. And their their names have gotten out as well, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Especially Ron is doing lots of stuff. He's played, uh, done a bunch of stuff with Bill Frizzell and Myra Melford, and um, so there was an interesting circle of musicians. And the great thing about Mark too is every time I went to see him play, it was something different. It might be a big band, it might be an Afro pop band, it might be a progressive rock band. You know, it might be a duo with a wacky percussionist. You know, so <laughs> I had this sense from very early on that that music. And, and jazz, but music in general could be a lot of things and a lot of valid things. And that we weren't going to write music off because of style or genre or approach. We, we, we were thinking about whether music was, if you enjoyed it, if it was good, you know. So, you know, I was listening to, to Bird and, and Ornette and Sidney Bechet and, and Yes, you know, and Stravinsky <laughs> all at the same time. Like, I didn't really think these things were different. I thought they were different takes on the same thing. It wasn't until I went to college when I heard people talking about hard bop and, you know, post bop. Like, I'd never heard these terms before, and I thought they were all absurd. I mean, I was like, this is all, these people are all great, you know, they're just doing different things. And obviously music has evolved. So so that's something I really carried with me. And, and he really emphasized having an individual voice from from a very early age, you know, that it was more important to, to be unique than it was to imitate. And yeah, that, yeah. And that's something that, that I try to impart to, you know, all my students as well. So
Has it always been the alto sax? A lot of uh, you know reed men really switch around, but I, I don't know if I've, I've uh, seen anything with you no. other than the alto sax. Yeah, no, it's always been alto. Yeah, definitely. I never played. I mean, I played a little bit of tenor in high school and toted it around for decades, and finally gave it to somebody who wanted it. <laughs> and I have a soprano that I played a little bit, but unfortunately, it spent a it spent a good time a good bit of time underwater during. Um, Hurricane Sandy. Oh my goodness! So, uh, and I never really got it. I was kind of just too heartbroken to have it, even have it looked at. But one of these days, I'm going to have it looked at because actually, um, the the choral director here, Gabriel Crouch, who's amazing, actually, uh, there's a piece that he wants to do with me that that requires me playing soprano. So I was thinking maybe it's time to get that fixed. But yeah, you know, I always felt you know, like the tenor, especially after Coltrane. And not only Coltrane, but the tenor saxophone was such the the voice of innovation, you know, whether it was Coltrane or Sonny Rollins. And then, you know, and then after Train, you have people like Steve Grossman and Michael Brecker. And, you know, it was yeah, always yeah. this, that was the saxophone. And, I and it's always, there's like, something very masculine about it as well or something. There's a bit of a macho-ness about yeah, tenor, I think. maybe so. Yeah, sure. But alto, just I, I don't know. I just felt like the the world needed more interesting alto players, and, and I think, <laughs> and I felt like there was, um, uh, like after Cannonball Adderley, I mean, oh, obviously we have Ornette and we have others too. But I felt like after Cannonball Adderley, there wasn't like um, a great unique voice on the alto saxophone. I mean, I would say arguably, as far as like a a, a kind of high-profile, unique voice. You know, it was Steve Coleman and Greg Osby and, you know, folks like that that, you know. So I, I think, like, sticking with alto, I mean, alto always felt better with my body and just with my, you know, my body cavity and, and just my sound and, and my actual, like, kind of speaking voice. Like, it just, it resonated in the right place. The tenor always felt too low and too big and, and too bulky. Like, it, it just never felt good to me. But there was like kind of you know this kind of solidarity of alto players. I remember the first time Bunky Green heard me play, he pulled me aside. He said, "Listen, he said there are only four of us. He said there's me and you and Greg and Steve, and somehow we have to take the alto into the future." And I was like, "You're on. We'll do it." You know, so, <laughs> that's great. It was very flattering. It was you know pretty <laughs> amazing moment for me. And uh, your most recent record that I'm I'm aware of is uh, Bird Calls, which right? Is, uh, a tribute to uh, Charlie Parker, who was an alto player, right? And that was his Absolutely, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think really hearing Charlie Parker when I was maybe in sixth or seventh grade was kind of what sealed the deal as far as wanting to, wanting to, to you know, make a life in this music. And, and prior to that, it had been, you know, people like Grover Washington and David Sanborn and, you know, who I still think to this day are absolutely fabulous musicians and, you know, just played such an inspirational role and, in me just wanting to play the saxophone, you know, so. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting because uh, in a way that is uh, that's interesting to me at least. That, that's sort of where our, our tastes differ a little bit. You're, you uh, really uh, fell for uh, more of the fusion players sort of through the 70s and 80s a bit, uh, looking at, uh, I, I saw did. some Yellow Jackets yeah, references. Yeah, yeah, definitely, absolutely. But, you know, a lot of that music sounded like what was on, on Top 40 radio. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the point of relation. Like this was instrumental music, but it, it sounded enough like what my friends were listening to that it just—it uh, was just a great entry point into 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 jazz or instrumental music or improvised music. Yeah, they, what, you know, whatever the rhythms are kind of straightforward it. and you know not, yeah. not not change heavy or right. Yeah, yeah. that that's for sure. But 
you know, but at the same time, I mean, you know, Grover was, I mean, it's incredibly soulful playing. I mean, you know, if even if you don't consider it, I mean, I think it's arguable. With you know, some people will consider it part of the jazz continuum, and others won't. But I mean, I just kind of avoid that argument. I mean, I think he was, is very charismatic and very soulful, and 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 it was very important black music. I mean, Grover Washington is an important figure in black music, and and it was more like instrumental soul and R and B. And this is before smooth jazz really existed. I mean, smooth jazz was a an invention of the re- recording industry where they actually sucked the soul and life out of that music and and made it incredibly sterile and and played it in elevators, you know. So I don't think of like David Sanborn and and Grover as as part of that at all. I think of of that really as being R&B. Oh, I'm from Philadelphia. You'll never catch me saying a bad thing about Grover. Right, exactly. There you go. I love those records. And a lot of the the players who played on them, uh, you know, stayed around Philadelphia and were uh, quite beloved as as Grover was as well. I can imagine. Um, Well, let's go to to something uh, of your playing the auto here. Let's go to something from uh, Bird Calls. This is the most recent recent, uh, release for you? It is, yeah. It's actually... um this is probably the longest <laughs> that I have. It's probably the longest I've gone without making an album, I think. Uh, we actually toured, you know, this came out in early f- 15, and we, we've toured the project for almost two years. But but it's winding down. But it had a lot of juice behind it. You know, a lot of people really liked it. And I wanted to keep touring it because I felt like we didn't get to a lot of places. You know, this fall was the first time the project got to the West Coast and did a really substantial tour of Europe. And now Talk um, about the project a little bit because the, the idea of a, a Charlie Parker tribute, it sounds uh, you're uh, the first person to get there, but it, right. it, it's not a, you're not doing, uh, you know, Coco and, and all that stuff. Right, here. exactly. I mean, I never really call it a tribute. I call it a, a devotion, really. Um, <laughs> because I, I think that the, the most, the best way that we honor those who came before, and, you know, and, and, "Quote unquote," pay tribute to you know the masters of this music is is to not play their music, but is to actually show why what they left us was was important and influential and, and meaningful and still contemporary. You yeah. know, so, you, you don't pay tribute to a revolutionary by by you know uh, copying exactly something. You know, you, you right. have to pay tribute to that revolutionary spirit they came from. You know, right? Exactly. So each tune on this album is actually tagged to a specific solo or composition of Charlie Parker in that there's like a snippet or an idea or maybe a a larger concept that Charlie Parker was dealing with and so it's all original music based on things that he played so or wrote so for example on the DL is a piece uh, based on on Donnelly but it's not based on the beginning of Donnelly. It's based on something that happens about three quarters of the way into the tune. And that's another interesting thing. Uh, you know, this all kind of came about because many years ago, over 20 years ago, I was working with a student on Donnelly, and we were taking bits of the melody kind of out of context and just isolating them and, and working on them just to get them under our fingers or under her fingers on the saxophone. It was actually Matana Roberts, who you might know her well. Oh, huge, huge fan of her. Yeah, yeah. So she was a student oh, of mine back in Chicago, back in the mid-'90s. And one of the things we kind of discovered is if you, if you took these parts in isolation and didn't think of them as being part of Donna Lee, they actually sounded, you know, more like Bartok or Schoenberg. They sounded very, very modern. And... So that's when I, I, it got in my head that there was more to explore with Charlie Parker than, than I had already done. And 
It, it just took a while for it to come back around. Yeah, but. it's even even like a few moments, or there's enough inspiration there to to spin off of. Absolutely. You know? yeah. So what we're going to hear is a, a track called "Chillin," which is based on relaxing at the Camarillo. But it's kind of a deconstruction of the melody. But a lot of the me- elements of the melody are there. But there's a and, and the essence of blues is there too. But but the way we deal with the form and just the way the melody unfolds is a bit different. And I think with a lot of these tunes, even my experience rehearsing the band was that if we they didn't if I told them what it was based on, you know, the light bulbs went on. But otherwise, maybe they wouldn't hear the connection. And and I think that's fine. I mean, one of the things people ask me is if they have to know Charlie Parker's work to to appreciate this album. And my answer is always no. But hopefully, the album, if they're not familiar with Bird, then maybe they'll go check them out. Yeah, that's one of my favorites from the album, actually. And uh, I and I love that band, too. I mean, I have a really different connection with all of them. You know, Adam O'Farrell is, um, I think, one of the greatest young trumpet players in the world right now. You know, he's like, I don't know, maybe 22 years old or something. Oh, really? Com- yeah. yeah. Oh, I had no idea. And he comes from that rich tradition. Arturo O'Farrell is his father, and Chico okay. O'Farrell is his grandfather. Yeah, so. Yeah. And as you know, you know, Chico Farrell was the primary importer of Cuban music into America and, and also wrote the Afro-Cuban Jazz Suite for Charlie Parker. So, you know, there's some interesting connections there. Rudy Royston is a, a fellow Coloradan, and we actually had a band together in 91. Oh, my goodness. Uh, back in Denver for the, that, that summer of 91. I think he, is he a Blue Note recording artist now? He's uh, No, he records for Dave Douglas's label. Oh, okay. I can't yeah. remember what that label's called right now. But the funny thing is we played in 91. Greenleaf, I think. Greenleaf, that's correct. <laughs> and it took years and years for us to get back and play together <laughs> again. He's only been in New York like maybe seven or eight years, I think. He actually lives very close. He's in Piscataway. Um, He's become much more prominent over the last couple of years. I've, I've seen his name a lot. Absolutely, yeah, with Frizzell and Dave Douglas. And, uh, I mean, he's definitely one of the busiest sideman drummers. And, you know, and he's leading, too. He has a record that just came out two weeks ago, a trio record. Um, so Rudy is someone that I'm, you know, very – we have a bond that goes, you know – is almost prehistoric in a way, and uh, <laughs> and then Francois Moutin, the bass player, is you know I met Francois my third week in New York, and uh, we've been playing together ever since, and he's on 
He's on a bunch of my albums. I mean, he's on you know albums going all the way back to 2002. So, and then Matt Mitchell is someone that it's been really great to see his his career rise. I mean, Matt had first gotten in touch with me because we had a mutual friend, and he was a librarian at University of the Arts <laughs> in Philadelphia, and and he would send me these very thoughtful emails and tell me what he was up to, and it always just seemed like oh, he's a nice kid who plays piano, and I had no idea what a monster he was. You know? and, <laughs> and he's doing a million things now too. He plays with everybody. He's in Tim. He's one of Tim Burns. Uh, main you know stalwart sideman and he also played with dave douglas and he's recently been part of a project with steve coleman that's probably going to record and tour next year so it's a it's a it's a really wonderful band and we've had we've done a lot of gigs it's been really great to to see the music grow in, in a in a live setting it would be really fun to do like a live recording before before the project wraps up yeah i, I saw on some uh press mentioned for you that you're in seven different bands or something i mean you've got a lot of yeah rolling I st- right now no though. i stopped doing that that just became that came became untenable more from a business perspective i'm always interested in lots of different things but i think it became very confusing to promoters who were you know you're trying to put together a tour for one particular project and someone says you know but i really want that other one you know and it's like well <laughs> can't do that so I decided to streamline a little bit. We're really starting with, with Gamak, the project, the, the Waiting is Forbidden, you know, the band with Dave Fusinski you played earlier. We're really trying to focus on, you know, releasing an album and, re- and really trying to tour that music and not, not confusing people too much. And I think that's just worked out a lot better. That doesn't mean I'm not working on other things at the same time. I mean, you know, along with Bird Calls, I was also was writing a saxophone quartet for the Prism Quartet. It was kind, kind of sort of based in Philly. And I was also writing a large piece for a dance company called Ragamala based in Minneapolis. So I'm always doing other things, but I think it's better to focus on on one group, I think, for the most part. And, you know, coming up, I'm planning on this group. This is kind of winding down, and and I'm going to go back to my Indo-Pak Coalition trio, which is a trio with Dan Weiss playing tabla and Reza Bassi playing guitar. And we made a great album in 2008 and, and did a ton of gigs. And we still get called for one-offs. But it's really time to write some new music for that band and and, and really think about where I'm at as, as a composer and what I'm hearing and all the things I've learned in, you know, in the eight years since that album came out. And the music that we're playing was actually written more than 10 years ago. So, oh, wow. so I'm really excited about that. Do you have any recordings in the pipeline at all? Or? Well, that's the next group I'm going to record. We have a mm-hmm. few gigs coming up. We're playing, we're actually playing in Albany on Friday, playing the older music in a double bill with Jack DeJanet's trio. And then in January, we're playing this, this beautiful uh, world music event called Global Fest at Webster Hall in New York City. Um, and that's when we're going to start premiering the new work. And we're doing some other things. But my idea is to hopefully record in the spring and maybe have a release in the fall. Mm-hmm. The next thing we have queued up is uh, the record that you made with Bunky Green, who is a, a fascinating player and somebody who was, uh, I don't know, uh, somewhat on the periphery of of, uh, of, of jazz, but uh, really made some amazing recordings. And uh, you, you got to uh, not just be inspired by him, but, but also to collaborate with him. Yeah, Bunky. I first heard Bunky when I was in college, when I was at Berkeley College of Music in like 1990 or something, and or maybe it was 91. And I was really blown away by what I heard. I actually heard places we've never been. Because I heard the great tradition of, of jazz, but I heard a really unique, individual, forward-thinking voice. And, and that was what I aspired to be, was was to, to have both of those elements. And um, 
So I just called him. You know, this is pre-internet. You know, this is like where you had to call kind of national directory assistance and, <laughs> and get a phone number. And I managed to get his office number at University of North Florida, where he was teaching until very recently. Was he really under Bunky? <laughs> he was. Yeah, somehow I, I decided to, uh, to call him at work, so that was a lot easier. And uh, and I talked to him. I just I told him that I'd heard this record and I was blown away. And I asked him if I could send him a tape of what I was doing. And he was amenable to that. And I sent him this cassette of some of my originals. And and he called back like a week or two later. He called very early on a Saturday morning. Woke me up and gave me a hard time about sleeping. He said you should be up practicing. <laughs> and uh, but said something along the lines of like you seem to be on you know your own track and you know keep doing it. And then I ran into him at a jazz educators conference a few years later where I was playing with the DePaul University Jazz Band. And I was a featured soloist and all this blah, blah, blah. And, and I ran into him at the conference because he was a major, a major person in jazz education. And I reminded him of sending him that cassette. He kind of vaguely remembered it. But I kept saying, like, you got to come hear us play. I really want you to come hear me play. And every time I ran into him, I was like, tomorrow, 4 o'clock. And... <laughs> And that was that time. That was that time he was there, and he was waiting for me when I got off the stage. And that's when he made that remark about, you know, Steve and Greg and him and me and how we had to, you know, somehow make this alto saxophone the instrument of innovation. And he uh, and we became friends ever since and always talked about doing something together. And, and then we were afforded the possibility um, by a, a promoter friend of mine in Chicago. So... And it was great. There was just a lot of interest in the project. And, you know, I was lucky to have you know, Jack DeJeanette want, really wanted to play on it and Jason Moran wanted to play on it. And So what we're going to hear is a piece called Soft, which actually one of my student groups is playing. So let's head into this cut. This is uh, entitled Soft from an album called Apex. It came out, I think, in 2010. Yes. Yeah. And uh, we're here with the Rudresh Mahanthapa.
It's you been just... a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. This, oh, it's this, been wonderful. It's been a lot of fun, and I plan on being here for a number of years. So let's <laughs> you know, let's do this as often as we can. Uh, the, the welcome mat is certainly out whenever well, you want to stop by. Thank you so much. You were talking about about things you have uh, coming up in the in the in the in the real near future right now. Yeah, next semester we have some really great stuff planned. We are. We're bringing in Walter Smith III, who's a really, really fabulous tenor player uh, based in L.A. He's going to be a guest with one of the small groups. That's going to be a concert at Richardson, Audit- Richardson Auditorium in uh, early March. We're bringing in Steve Lehman's Celebeon uh, project, which is a very interesting kind of hip-hop project, with H. Prism from Antipop Consortium and um, a really famous rapper from Senegal. That'll be later in March. Darman Meter from New York Voices is going to be a guest with... Uh, the Jazz Vocal Collective in April. And then we're going to end the semester with a large commission from the great composer and pianist Billy Childs. Uh, we're commissioning him to write a piece for the big band. And and Darcy James Argue is also arranging some of his other work uh, for, the, for the Creative Large Ensemble as well. So a lot of exciting stuff. You want to find out more, uh, follow us on Facebook or Twitter at Jazz at Princeton, or you can always track me down through uh, Princeton's directory and send me an email saying I want to know more. <laughs> That's great. Uh, thanks again. Thanks so much for coming out. It's been a, a complete pleasure to uh, bring you on. I have a million questions and uh, a million other points I wanted to get to that I haven't gotten to, so hopefully we will see you again sometime Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure, and like I said, we have time is on our side. <laughs> Smoking. Let's listen to it. One, two, three, four. That's it for our show. Thanks to WPRB for use of their studios for this episode. Thanks to Rudresh. You can find out more about his work at rudreshm.com. That's R U D R E S H M.com. You can catch past episodes of the Fun to Know podcast at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Catch me spinning Jazz Mondays at 11 a.m. EST on WPRB Princeton. Read my film reviews at Falker.com and check back for more Fun to Know. We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.